Okay, we're going to continue our study through the book of Genesis. Now, men specifically, uh, we have this tendency to fo- follow uh, our fathers. Men have a tendency to follow the fathers before them. Uh, for example, my father loves FSU football, therefore his son, me, I love FSU football. My father loved baseball, so I loved baseball. Great, thank you. My, my father loved painting, so most of my life I pretended like I liked painting until I got older. And many things that my father loved and enjoyed to do, I loved and enjoyed to do. My father, he also had a love for tobacco. I later in life developed a love for tobacco. See, we often follow in our father's footsteps for both better and for worse. And we're going to see here in this text, in Genesis chapter 26, that Isaac is no different. He is going to follow in Abraham's footsteps, both for better and for worse. Which brings me to the title of this teaching, Like Father, Like Son. If you would please pray with me. Jesus, we come before you, Lord, and we pray that you would speak to us through this text, God, that you would um, just pierce our hearts, Lord, encourage us, convict us, make us more like you, Lord. Uh, we want to hear from you tonight, so please speak. Give us ears to hear in your name. Amen. Okay, um, so just a little reminder, we have CDs in the back if you've missed any of the teachings um, in the past a few weeks or few months. Um, but basically, where we're at now, uh, Abraham just passed away um, in the last chapter, and then we see Isaac and Rebekah come back on the scene. Uh, remember, Isaac was a picture of the promised son, a picture of Jesus, and Rebekah is a picture of the church. We've talked a lot about that symbolism uh, throughout these teachings through Genesis. And we saw Rebekah had she conceived, she was impregnated, impregnated by twins, right? And God said, you have two nations in your womb. And we saw this struggle, right, between Jacob and Esau. And we talked about how that's a picture of our Christian walk. We're Rebecca, we're the bride of Christ. And we have this struggle inside of us between the son of the spirit, which is Jacob, and the son of the flesh, which is Esau. Now, As we dive into Genesis chapter 26, verse 1, we're not going to see Jacob um, in this chapter, but we will see Esau at the very end of the chapter. This chapter is primarily focused on Isaac uh, and Rebekah and this situation that Isaac finds himself in that's very similar to what Abraham, a situation Abraham found himself in earlier in Genesis. So let's look at Genesis chapter 26, picking it up verse, in verse 1. It says, There was a famine in the land besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. Okay, so there's a famine in the land. 
that means that there's a time of need. Isaac's in a time of need. There seems to be no provision. He's desperate, but so often that's right where God wants us. He wants us in that place of desperate need for him. Now, he goes to Gerar and he meets the king Abimelech, which is the king of the Philistines. Now, we remember Abimelech from chapters 20 and 21. It seems to be that this isn't the same Abimelech, that this is probably Abimelech's son. Okay, so this is Abimelech is probably a family name. Some scholars will suggest that this was just a title for the king of the Philistines. So it's either a family name or it's just another king, but probably not the same king because this is many years later. All right, but it's interesting how the story unfolds so similarly to the story back in um, back in Genesis 20 and 21, look what happens in Genesis chapter 26, verse two, it says, then the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt, live in the land of which I shall tell you. Now, listen, there's a famine in the promised land. And so, of course, Isaac, considering Rebecca, considering his family, hey, we need to go somewhere to, to, to make an income, to be able to buy food or grow food because we can't grow any food here in the promised land. It's a famine. There's a drought. There's nothing being produced in the land right now. But we have to remember that Egypt throughout the scriptures is a picture of the world. Okay, so what God is telling Isaac is don't go to the world for your provision. Stay here and endure the famine, which brings me to my first of five points. Don't flee the famine, endure it. Don't flee the famine, endure it. See, oftentimes we'll face these famines or trials, if you will, in our spiritual walk and we'll want to go back to Egypt where it's more comfortable, where it's more cozy, where there's more provision, where life's a little bit easier. You ever come to the place as a Christian and you find that, man, this Christianity thing, it's too tough. Life was a lot easier before I came to Christ. Now things are extremely difficult. There's part of me that wants to go back to Egypt where it's comfortable, where I have everything that I think I need. And life is just a little bit easier, a little more comfortable. But regardless of how difficult our circumstances get, we have to convince ourselves that fleeing to Egypt is not an option. It's simply not an option. We have to endure through the famine. Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 5, verse 3. He says, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. He says, we glory in these times of tribulations. We should glory in these times of famine because God is producing endurance in us. And look what it says there at the very end of verse two. It says, live in the land of which I shall tell you. What's God telling Isaac? He's saying, grow where you're planted. Grow where you're planted, even when you don't see an opportunity for growth 
amongst your circumstances. Yes, it doesn't look like there's going to be any growth that takes place in this land. It's an absolute famine. Where I am presently, I don't see any growth in my life. All these things around me, all these trials, all these tribulations, it seems like life is getting worse than getting better. But we can rest assured that even if we don't see growth on the outside, growth is happening on the inside. And that's what God is doing here with Isaac. There's a famine in the land and there's no physical fruit or harvest. God is producing endurance in Isaac. Picking it up in Genesis chapter 26, verse three, it says, Dwell in this land and I will be with you and bless you for to you and your descendants. I will give all these lands and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham, your father, and I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands and in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charges, my commandments, my statutes and my Loss. So we see here that God tells Isaac, hey, no, you need to stay in. You need to dwell in this land, the promised land. And by dwelling in this land, you are going to inherit the very promise that I gave to Abraham. Okay, this oath is going to be carried over to you. The covenant is going to be carried through Isaac, which we already know. But look back at verse three. It says, dwell in the land and I will be with you and bless you. Just because there's a famine in the land doesn't mean that God left. Just because you're walking through a trial doesn't mean that God's not in it. Which brings me to my second point. Dwell in the land and delight in the Lord. Dwell in the land and delight in the Lord, even in the midst of famine. If you turn with me to Psalms chapter 37, Psalm 37, very popular, famous verse, Psalm 37, I'll get there. Verse 3 says, Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Dwell in the land and feed off his faithfulness. Feed on it. He's faithful. Even if there's a famine, he's still faithful. He's faithful regardless of the famine. And he says, delight yourself in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Now, so often people like to jump to the last part of verse four. I thought God will give me the desires of my heart. What's happening here? There's a famine in the land. God's not giving me the desires of my heart. That's the second part. It says, delight yourself in the Lord and then he'll give you the desires of your heart. See, we need to delight ourselves in the Lord first before the desires of our heart are fulfilled. Why? Because if we're not delighting ourselves in the Lord, then the desires of our heart very likely aren't from the Lord. And he's going to fulfill the desires of our heart when they're from him. See, our hearts are wicked and deceitful above all things. As Jeremiah says in 
uh, chapter 17, verse 9, Jeremiah 17, verse 9, our hearts are wicked and deceitful above all things. So when the desires of our hearts aren't rooted in our delight in the Lord, then our desires will mislead us. So what do we do about that? It's Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. When we're seeking God's heart and delighting in him, our desires will line up with his desires. Our desires will line up with his desires for us. See, maybe you're in that place like Isaac was. Maybe you're in a famine. You're experiencing your own spiritual or practical famine. You have that drought kind of going on and you're questioning God's provision for you. You have two options, really. You can either seek your own provision in Egypt, or you can seek God and recognize that he's all the provision you need. This is what Paul talks about in Philippians chapter four. If you'd flip with me there, Philippians chapter 4, Paul, speaking from prison, often refers to his chains in Philippians. He says this, Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, he says, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned to, in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Another verse that gets taken out of context sometimes. What's he talking about? He's in prison. He said, I can be content in all things. God can give me contentment even in the midst of suffering, when I have plenty, when I have none. If I'm seeking God first and seeking his kingdom first, then I recognize he's all the provision I need. I need nothing more than what God's already blessed me with, with what he's already given me. See, even when our circumstances seem bleak, we have to remember like Isaac, that when we're in the center of God's will, we're in the safest place we could ever be. Because if he forsakes the promised land, he's forsaking the blessing. He says, dwell in this land. If you dwell in this land, I'll continue to bless you. You'll carry on the promise that I gave Abraham. So you need to stay here. If you leave this place, you're stepping outside of God's will and you're likely stepping outside of the blessings of God. And that's what he says. Remember back in Genesis chapter 26, verse 4, it says, And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands, and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. He's saying again that, Obviously, Isaac is going to carry out the promise that was made to Abraham. God's like, don't go to Egypt, whatever you do, Isaac. Why? What happened to Abraham when he went to Egypt? If you remember back in Genesis chapter uh, 12, shortly after the promise was first given to Abraham, if you look at verses 10 to 20, we won't read it for time's sake, but this is when 
Abraham leaves the promised land. He goes to Egypt, almost gives Sarah away, and then Pharaoh ends up blessing Abraham with what? With livestock, with servants, with Egyptian servants. One of those servants happened to be Hagar. When Abraham left the promised land and went to Egypt, he came back with some baggage. He came back with Hagar, which produced Ishmael. Now we have the nation of Islam. So he says, hey, don't go back to Egypt. We don't want you to fall into the same problem that your dad fell into. Okay, let's not mess up the promise any longer. Okay, let's keep the lineage pure and not cause any more confusion. A lot of confusion came from Ishmael, right? God's like, hey, let's not do that again. Don't go back to Egypt. We don't want you to come back with the same baggage that your father did. Picking it up in Genesis chapter 26, verse 6. So Isaac dwelt in Gerar. So Gerar is right on the border of Egypt. Okay, it's right on the border. It's still in the promised land, but barely. Now we know this is the same place that Abraham uh, went to and dwelled in. But follow me here. He's right on the line between the promised land and the world. Remember, Egypt is a picture of the world. This is technically obedience, but he's pushing his luck a little bit. He's very close to crossing the line. We too can find ourselves in a position of blessing, but flirting with compromise, which brings me to the fifth point. Sorry, third. My eyes, I don't know what I saw. It's those lights from earlier. Still seeing Jesus and his glory. (laughs) Be careful where you draw the line. Okay. If we stay on the line long enough, inevitably we're going to cross it. Remember what happened with Lot and his compromise, right? He went from setting his tent toward Sodom to living in Sodom. And he almost gave up his daughters to these guys to be raped. Like the compromise in Lot's life started with him crossing the line. He got too close to the line. Inevitably, he ended up crossing it. Be careful about where you draw the lines in your Christian walk. Your line might be too close to the world for God's comfort. You might think, hey, you're pushing your luck a little bit. Yeah, you're technically still in the position of blessing, but you're very close to the line. That's a fine line. Now that could be, maybe you have a girlfriend and maybe you're, uh, we can do these things, but we won't have sex. We can do all these other things, but we won't have sex. It's only a matter of time before you cross the line so far that there's no return. Or maybe it's, eh, it's okay if I have a beer or a few or six or however many that leads to. It's like, oh, where's the line there? Or maybe it's like, "Eh, I can smoke occasionally. Okay. I can have a cigar here and there. I can smoke a cigarette here and there. It's like, wait a minute. Where's the, where's the, the line? Are you coming right up to the line or are you staying within the boundaries that God sets up? Because ultimately it comes down to personal conviction. When we talk about these things, it's Romans chapter 14, uh, verse 50, verse 5, sorry. You can write it down. Romans chapter 14, verse 5, it says, let each one be convinced in his own mind. Let each one be convinced in his own mind, specifically speaking of conviction. 
if God says you're crossing the line or you're getting too close to the line, then you're getting too close to the line or you are crossing the line. If he says, if he didn't tell you that you're crossing the line and you're okay and there's not conviction there, then maybe you're not. Or maybe he's not convicting you of that specific thing yet. Let each one be convinced in his own mind. Whatever God tells us to do, we ought to do it. This is what Mary tells um, the servants at the wedding feast there in Cana, uh, referring to Jesus. She says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. So that's really what it comes down to when we talk about lines and boundaries in our Christian walk. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. It's not about what I tell you to do. It's about what he tells you to do because the spirit convicts perfectly. And what some person might think this is okay for me, it might not be okay for someone else. But we got to be very careful here. Let each one be convinced in his own mind by God, not yourself. Don't convince yourself and justify, okay, this thing is okay. It's okay for me to do this. You got to allow God to convince you. Is that okay? God, is this, is this really okay? Am I just jumping the gun on this thing and just assuming, yeah, this isn't that bad, but Lord, are you trying to tell me that this, this isn't okay, that, that I need to put up more boundaries in my life? Because God wants us to establish boundaries. He wants us to stay within the parameters of the promised land because he wants us, he wants to bless us. It's our responsibility to position ourselves in a place of blessing. God will bless us and he's bestowed grace on us. But there's also a reality here, just like we see in Isaac. If Isaac crosses that line and goes to Egypt, what's going to happen to the promise? This promise right here, how God communicates it is conditional. You stay here and you'll be blessed. If he goes to Egypt, who knows what happens with the rest of the Bible? But such is the truth for us as well. We need to listen to what the Lord's saying. Hey, that's not okay. Or, okay, that I'm not convicted about this thing. This isn't sin. Let, let each one be convinced in his own mind by God. We ought to stay in the position of blessing. And that comes through whatever he tells you to do, do it. Whatever that is. Picking it up in Genesis chapter 26, verse 7. It says, And the men of the place, place asked, about his wife and he said she is my sister for he was afraid to say she is my wife because he thought lest the men of the place kill me for rebecca because she is beautiful to behold think about this isaac just literally encountered the lord he just encountered the lord and now he's sinning So often God will bring us to these mountaintop experiences and we'll put ourselves back in the valley. It's like God just made, we just have this amazing encounter with God. And then for some, who knows what reason our flesh is so weak, we'll put ourselves back in the valley. We'll give in to something. He tells this lie to these people. And this isn't, this is worse than the lie that Abraham said, because at least Abraham, it was a half lie or a white lie, right? Sarah was half-sister of Abraham, not Rebecca with Isaac. Yeah, they're cousins. It's kind of weird, but um, but still, it's definitely not his sister. So he's flat out lying, but he's following in his father's footsteps, which brings me to the fourth point. Dad's ways become the son's ways. Dad's ways become the son's ways. 
he's doing almost exactly what Abraham did previously. See, children will often do what their parents did before them, for better and for worse. And we can look at that and talk about some of the uh, boundaries we talked about. And some of this, maybe it's maybe it's drinking, or maybe it's smoking, or maybe it's all these different things. But it can also be character character issues, not just external things. It could be in the in the church judgment, criticism, pride, legalism. Children pick up on those things and what you invest into them without even realizing that you're investing those things into them, they're going to pick up on it and they're going to follow in their father's or in their mother's footsteps. That's what we see here with Isaac. He's doing exactly what Abraham did before him. And then the children, they'll justify their sin because they saw you do it. I could, I can do it if you do it. We need to be careful about the example that we set. And he says that he did this because he was afraid because he thought that they might kill him, right? He's terrified. He's scared. He doesn't want to die. So he's willing to give up his wife. Fear of man leads us to do some pretty stupid things, huh? He's ready to give up his wife. Like that's crazy because he's not willing to die for her. Now, remember, Isaac is a picture of the promised son, right? But where Isaac wasn't willing to die for his bride, Jesus was. That's why Jesus is a better, a greater promised son. Picking it up in Genesis chapter 26, verse 8, says, Now it came to pass, when he had been there a long time, that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked through a window, and he saw, and there was Isaac showing endearment to Rebekah, his wife. Isaac's sin finally caught up with them. He could only hide it for so long. It says, after a long time, Abimelech finally sees this thing happen. Our sin's going to find us out eventually. It will be exposed eventually. Even if we think, like Isaac, I got this thing under wraps. I'm not going to die. I can still have my relationship with my wife. No one's touching her. We're good. It's only a matter of time before those things are exposed. Look at verse 9. It says, Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, quite obviously, she is your wife. So how could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I said, lest I die on account of her. And Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might soon have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt on us. This is an important lesson as well. We see Isaac, he's sinning to protect himself, but he almost brought guilt upon the whole nation of the Philistines. Because remember what happened in Genesis chapter 20 when, um, when the same situation, the Philistines almost slept with Sarah. God said that he brought judgment upon all the men there, uh, all the men uh, uh, of the Philistine population. So, Isaac, his sin, though he likely thinks it's only affecting him, it is going to affect an entire nation. Luckily, Abimelech finds this thing out. Nobody follows through with acting out on Rebekah, and the nation is uh, saved from the wrath of God in this story. But it's important to pull from this that our sin absolutely does affect other people, maybe even whole nations. Picking it up in Genesis chapter 26, verse 11. 
So Abimelech charged all his people saying, he who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Then Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold and the Lord blessed him. See, Isaac sowed where God had told him to sow and he reaped an abundant blessing from the Lord. Which brings me to the fifth point. Endure the famine now and reap a harvest later. Endure the famine now and reap a harvest later. We might not always understand why God tells us to do certain things in certain places at certain times. But his ways are far above our ways and his thoughts are far above our thoughts. It's just simply about walking in obedience regardless of understanding. Paul says it like this in Galatians chapter 6 verse 9. He says, Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Just continue to do good. Don't grow weary while doing good. What's he implying there? Sometimes we can grow weary while doing good. Sometimes we can get tired of being obedient. He says, don't grow weary while doing good, especially when we're falling into trials and tribulations and famines. I'm doing all this stuff. I'm serving the Lord. I'm giving my heart to him and my life. Like, I'm struggling. There's all these different external circumstances that are coming my way. And though I'm pouring my life out, I feel a drought. I feel a famine. He says, don't grow weary when you're in that state. In due season, you shall reap if you do not lose heart. The blessing may be right around the corner. This reminds me so much of Patmos terms in general. It's just, you know, four months of go, 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 go. And especially as a student, but even as a staff member, sometimes you're like, I don't know why we're doing what we're, do we really have to do this? Like, do we really have to take it this far? Like, come on, I'm tired. I haven't slept in days. I'm hungry. Yada, 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 all these different things until graduation comes. And then you see the harvest of transformation in so many people's lives. And it just brings tears to your eyes. Like it was all for the, I would have done it 10 times over again, just for these, just for these students right here, because the harvest is so abundant, is so plentiful. And that's what we see in our spiritual lives. It's like, yeah, there's a tendency to grow weary while doing good, but if we endure to the end, we'll see a harvest and we'll look back at how much we endured. And it's like, that was nothing compared to the harvest that we reaped. Pick it up in Genesis chapter 26, verse 13. It says, The man began to prosper and continued prospering until he became very prosperous. Wow, a lot of prospering happening in this verse three times. Uh, For he had possession of flocks and possessions of herds and a great number of servants. So the Philistines envied him. So not only did he reap crops, but also herds and servants and all these other things. See, when we choose obedience in one area, God often overwhelmingly blesses us in a bunch of different areas. Just be obedient. This just, just sow seeds right here. And beyond just sowing the seeds, he was blessed with servants. He was blessed with livestock, more than just the abundance of a harvest. He was blessed in so many different areas of his life. But I want to key in on one thing here. The Philistines envied him. They wanted what Isaac had. They're looking at Isaac's life and all the blessing in his life. I want what Isaac has. You ever struggle with envy as a believer? You look at someone else's life and you're like, man. 
I would really like to have their car or their house or a house at all or their children or their family or they have all these other things. But the Lord warns us of envy and we see a story that specifically focuses on it in John chapter 21. In John chapter 21, we see Jesus in his encounter with Peter. We have to remember that Peter, the last real interaction they had, um, Peter denied Jesus. Okay, now Jesus is coming to Peter, bestowing grace on him. Now, Peter did run to the tomb in an act of repentance, but Jesus confronts Peter while he's fishing here and he bestows grace on him and he talks about how he's going to essentially allow him to be involved in ministry again, you know, feed feed my sheep, tend my lambs. And then in verse 20 of John chapter 21, he says, then Peter turning around saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. Who was that? John following who also had leaned on his breast at the up at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, But Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Think about this. I want you to really put yourself in Peter's shoes. You just denied the Lord three times. And now you're worried about the blessing of someone else. It's like, really, Peter? Come on, you just got so much grace. The only difference between Peter and Judas was Peter ran to the tomb and Judas ran to the noose. But regardless of that, he just denied the Lord. And now the Lord's bestowing so much grace on him. And Peter's caught up with the blessings that John's going to receive. Peter lost sight of the grace that was bestowed on him. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. The Lord said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient. What does that mean? The grace that the Lord bestowed on us by dying on the cross is all the grace we need. That grace is sufficient. And that's the lesson he's trying to get across to Peter here. That That's enough. You need no more than that. We have to always um, look to the grace of God through the lens of what we actually deserve. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, it says, for the wages of sin is death. Okay, So anything greater than hell and death is grace. So anything more than the grace of salvation is just a bonus blessing. But the Philistines, they're envying Isaac. Not that they had the opportunity to have salvation, right here, but this concept of envy is so, so dangerous in the church. We can covet people's giftings. We can covet so many different things. We have to get back to the contentment that's rooted in the grace of the cross. Genesis chapter 26, verse 15. Now the Philistines had stopped up all the wells, which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father, and they had filled them with earth. And Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Then Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent on the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water, which had dug, which they had dug in the days of Abraham, his father, for the Philistines had stopped them 
up after the death of Abraham. He called them by the names which his father had called them. So basically after Abraham's death, they, you know, buried the wells, put dirt back in them. Isaac, find him and his servants, they find on the wells, they dig them back up. Let's look what happens in verse 19. Also Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of running water there. This is some symbolism here. Look at this. In the valley, they dug in the valley and they found a well of running water there. Jesus, when he encounters the Samaritan woman at the well, he says, the water that I shall give you will spring up in you the water of eternal life. Then we also see in John chapter seven, if you flip there real quick, John chapter seven, Jesus, this is the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, that great day of the feast, verse 37. Jesus cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him should receive For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So we see this spring of living water Jesus is communicating is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. So often when we're in the valley, we just need that spring of life from the Holy Spirit to encourage us, to empower us, to continue on in our spiritual walks. The Holy Spirit will give us the power to endure any valley. Look what happens in verse 20 of Genesis chapter 26. I'm making that point because a lot of this stuff connects afterwards. Genesis chapter 26, verse 20, it says, But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek, because they quarreled with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one also, so he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it, so he called its name Rehoaboth, because she said, for now, he said, for now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. So these words, Esek, it literally means quarrel. Sitna means enmity, okay? So think about this. In Matthew chapter 4, and in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit after he's baptized by John the Baptist, when the Holy Spirit, Matthew 4 says, descends upon him like a dove, what immediately takes place after that? The temptation in the wilderness. He has a quarrel with the enemy. The enemy. He has this fight. He has this spiritual battle. What's the point? The Holy Spirit gives us the power to endure spiritual warfare. We don't just ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that life will get easier. No, we ask to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that we can be empowered to fight the battle that God has for us. And that's what we see with the picture of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. Now look what happens here. It says in verse twenty. Two, they finally found a well um, called Rehoboth. And look what they say. For now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. 
After a couple fights, they finally find a well that had enough room for them to dwell in, a well that they can kind of be around and dwell near and use the well, and there wasn't going to be another fight. See, sometimes we just need to keep digging. That's what they're doing. They keep digging wells until we find the right place. God has a place and God has a plan for us. But that perfect plan and that perfect place doesn't mean that it's not going to come without hardship. Often there's quarrels, often there's enmity, often there's conflicts. God's will is perfect, holy, acceptable, pleasing. It doesn't mean that it's it, it, that it's without trial, that it's without quarrels. God will often allow quarrels, enmity, contentions, all these different things to prepare us for the place that he has for us. And props to these servants, they just keep digging until they find the right place. That's an exhortation to us. We just keep digging, we keep fighting until we find the right place. Genesis chapter 26, verse 23, it says, Then he went up from there to Beersheba, And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for my servant Abraham's sake. So we say the Lord, we see the Lord appears to Isaac again and encourages him. He says, don't fear. I'm still with you. I'm still going to bless you, which I'm sure was really encouraging to Isaac because what happened after the last time he encountered the Lord? He sinned. He lied. But he confessed his sin, even though he got found out. And now the Lord's saying, hey, don't fear. Don't be afraid. I'm still with you. You repented of your sin. I'm still in this. I'm still going to bless you. Pick it up at verse 25. It says, so he built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. And he pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar, which is Ahuza, one of his friends in Fecol, and commander, the commander of his army, and Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me since you hate me and have sent me away from you? But they said, We have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. So we said, Let there now be an oath between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm since we have not touched you and since we have done nothing to you but good and have sent you away in peace." You are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast and they ate and drank. Then they arose early in the morning and swore an oath with one another. And Isaac sent them away and they departed from him in peace. Look what happens here. This is really interesting. The very men that sent Isaac away, right? They sent him away. They said, no, get out of here. Your country, your people, they're becoming too great. You need to leave. You need to find other land. We're essentially threatened by you. Then they, they come, they find Isaac and they try to make an oath with him. And look what Isaac says. Isaac says, um, aren't you basically, aren't you the ones that hate me? You hate me now. And now you're trying to make an oath with me. Should I even trust you? The interesting thing here is that the Philistines see the favor of God on Isaac's life and they, it changes their heart towards Isaac. You ever run into somebody that you don't really like? I don't want to use the word hate. You would never hate anyone, I know. 
but you run into something, I don't really like that person. And then you start to get to know them and then maybe you see God working in them. You see God's favor on their life and suddenly you start to have a change of heart. Wait a minute, no, God's favor is on that person. God's doing something in that person. I thought I didn't like them, but now something's changing and that's God doing the change. I had um, a kid when I was a, a student in Patmos, this kid, his name was Tim Mallory. He was a punk. Like he, he was like just so immature and he was always cracking jokes at the wrong time. And he was like 19 and I was 26 at the time. And I'm like, man, this kid, I don't know if I'm going to be able to deal with him for four months. Are you serious? In the, the, the peak of my hatred towards him, if you will, I got put in a tent with him. So I had to stay in a tent with him for a week. And you know what happened? I started seeing God work in his life. I started seeing God's favor on his life. And I was like, man, this kid's got, got some gifts and some things that God's really blessed him with. And I was forced to pray for him more. And my, and the Lord started changing my heart towards this guy. And this guy became my best friend in Patmos, my absolute best friend. Is still great friends with him today. He's a, he's a missionary in Colombia, and he's awesome. I absolutely love him to death. But it's interesting how when we see God working in someone else's life, God's favor on their life, it's like, wait a minute. Yeah, I might have not wanted anything to do with it. Get out of my country, as they tell Isaac, and suddenly, no, I'm drawing near to you, and I want to make a pact with you. I want to make an oath with you. I want to be friends with you. It's so funny how the person that we may hate the most today could be our best friend tomorrow. But that's what the Lord does. And I think that's one of the reasons why he tells us to pray for our enemies. In closing, verse 32 says, It came to pass the same day that Isaac's servants came and told him about the well which they had dug and said to him, We have found water. So he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When Esau was 40 years old, he took as wives Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. So Esau, he married pagan women. He married two Hittite women. Now, remember last week we talked about how God had ordained, he had chosen um, Jacob before he even came out of the womb, right? The promise was that the older shall serve the younger. So God ordained that Jacob was going to be the one that received the blessing, that received the promise. He chose him. Now, maybe God knew that Esau was going to marry outside of the faith that he was going to marry a pagan woman. I'm sure God knew that. I don't know if that's the reason why he chose Jacob over Esau, but we see this happen. And we already talked about um, a couple weeks ago uh, the disastrous things that come with marrying a person that's outside of the faith from being unequally yoked. It literally will destroy a household. And we talked about in the past, in Solomon's case, destroy a nation. Talked about how Solomon's wives turned his heart away from God. So, in closing, Isaac, he followed Abraham's footsteps in many ways that were good, also in many ways that were bad. Isaac wasn't perfect, 
but he continued to pursue God. He continued to choose to be obedient with God even when it was hard, even when he was going through the famine, even when he was questioning, even when things, things didn't make sense to him. He endured through the famine and at the end we see how prosperous he was, how blessed he truly was. Again, Galatians 6 verse 9, let us not grow weary while doing good for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Don't give up. Endure through the famine because the blessing might be right around the corner. So often in famines, we want to give up. We want to quit. Walk away from the Lord. Go back to the world, whatever it is for you personally. But that blessing might be right there. Within a year, he's blessed a hundredfold of what he sowed. And not just the harvest, the servants, he got everything. Now we know we're talking about material things here. That's how the Lord chose to bless Isaac. Doesn't mean that that's how the Lord's gonna choose to bless each of us. But he does promise that if we continue to endure, if we don't grow weary, we will reap a blessing from him. We will reap a harvest from him. And that very well could be a spiritual harvest but he says don't grow weary the blessing might be right around the corner let's pray lord we thank you for your word we thank you for this chapter god and um the example um that you give us through isaac lord and even in his shortcomings even in his mistakes god um you you are teaching us and you taught him lord and we just pray that you would give us the endurance that you gave him that even in the midst of famine or trials or tribulations or whatever it is god that we would endure because we know that you don't allow us to walk through those things because you're mad at us or because you hate us but on the contrary because you love us and you want to produce things in us god and you're a good father you desire to bless us lord so Help us to have the mind and the hearts to stay in the position of blessing. I pray that we would be people that um, just have that heart, that whatever you tell us to do, we do it in your name. Amen.